Welcome to Lakeshore. We're so glad you're with us today. We want to welcome our Smyrna campus. We're glad you, could, you are uh, with us today at Smyrna. Uh, those that are joining us online with our live stream, those that connect through our podcast, we're glad that you're with us too. Uh, we are in a series from the book of James, going straight through verse by verse. Today we're going to be in James chapter 5, uh, beginning with verse 7, if you want to be turning there or pulling it up on your smartphone or tablet. Uh, each week we've been learning really practical ways to live out our faith, to, to put our faith into action in everyday life, uh, how we need to live it daily. And this week we're looking at one that I think would apply to all of us again, as all of them do. Uh, this week we're talking about learning how to practice patience. So let's look together at James 5, beginning with verse 7. James says this, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else, all you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. How many of you will admit today you sometimes struggle with patience? Let me see raising of hands. Smarter Campus, how many of you guys? All right. I think almost every hand went up. Uh, those of you, some of you had your hand up before I finished the sentence. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> which is a pretty good indication, like in that clip we saw from Zootopia, when someone's being slow, don't you want to help finish their sentences for them? Uh, I find myself doing that, trying to help them get it out when they're struggling with it. That's not very kind to do that to people, but our impatience causes us sometimes to do that. Someone said this, I saw it the other day, patience will come to the one who waits for it. <laughs> Think about that one for a minute. James is writing to Christians, to the church, the first generation of Christians ever to live on the earth. And here's the circumstance they're in. They are suffering persecution for their faith. So when James talks about patience in this passage, he's not just talking, talking about waiting at the DMV. He's talking about being steadfast in your faith even while being persecuted for your faith. That's a whole other level of having to be patient. Somebody defined patience scripturally from James this way. It's the ability to wait and to stay steadfast under trial while you're waiting. To stay steadfast under trial while you're waiting. And that's the focus we want to have today as we look at patience. Not, not just so much from a casual side, but from the side of, of being tested severely and being able to hold on through it and be faithful to God. 
School's about to start. Isn't it crazy? School's about to start up now. And I, I want us to be praying for our teachers. In fact, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to have a special time of praying for our teachers. But, but I want us to think through the challenge that they face. I was reminded of it when I, I saw this story. There was a teacher uh, in the, the middle of winter uh, getting her kindergarten students ready to go home at the end of the day. And she was helping one of her students put his boots on. He asked for help, and she could see why. With her pulling and him pushing, the boot still didn't want to go on very easily. By the time she got the second boot on, she'd already worked up a sweat. The little boy whimpered as he looked down at the boots. Teacher, they're on the wrong feet. She looked at him, and sure enough, they had put him on the wrong feet. So with just as much effort, she had to take the boots back off again. It took a lot of effort and pushing and pulling. They finally got the boots off, and she managed to keep her cool as they worked together to get the, back, the boots back on again, this time on the right feet. Again, all the effort it took to get them back on again. And they were on the right feet this time. Then he announced, these aren't my boots. She bit her tongue rather than get in his face and scream, why didn't you say so, like she wanted to. And once again, she struggled to help him pull the ill-fitting boots off. Then he said, they're my brother's boots. My mother made me wear them. <laughs> so once again, biting her tongue, went through all the effort again, the pushing and the pulling, got the boots back on, they're on the right feet. Then she looked at him and said, now where are your mittens? And he said, I stuffed them in my boots. <laughs> Have you ever had one of those days? Yeah, or worse, right? That's why it's so important for us today to listen and learn as James teaches us the value of waiting. That's the first thing on your outline today, to learn the value of waiting. He's encouraging us, remember, to remain steadfast under trial. To remain steadfast under trial. There's value to that. There, there's worth to that. There's, there's blessing attached to that that you can't experience without that. Okay, so, so you miss out on the blessings God wants you to have if you can't learn the value of waiting and staying steadfast as you wait, even while you're under trial. As I was preparing this message, I got out our prayer list again. I have it on my laptop, and at our staff meetings every Tuesday, we go through our prayer list, and we pray for the needs that we are aware of here in our church family. And as I went through that list, I noticed again, how long some of the names had been on there. Some of the situations had been going on that we'd been praying about. Members of our church family who have been trying to hold on and be faithful and steadfast under a trial that kept going and going and going and was still going for a lot of them. I mean, all the needs on the list are important, but it especially stood out to me in light of this message how many of them have been going on for a long time. Some still struggling with the loss of a loved one. 
And I know people say, well, they should be able to get past it and they should be able to move on with their lives. But for some people more than others, it's, it's difficult to just keep putting one foot in front of another, to get up every day and go do what they need to do while they're missing that spouse that's not there anymore. And it's a battle every day for them. For some people, there's been prolonged illness. I mean, we're going to celebrate in the next couple of weeks Michaela Clausen's cancer-free. But look at the years she's gone through and her family has gone through to get to that. And there are others here still going through prolonged illnesses. We've got people with cancer diagnosis that are going through those treatments. People who have a spouse that is suffering from uh, forms of dementia and Alzheimer's and, and, and watching that progress all the way through. One of our elders I mentioned for prayer, Art Laird, is, is battling with Parkinson's disease. And, and others, the list could go on and on with extended illnesses that every day they have to deal with. And some of them are prognosis that don't show that they're going to get better and they know it and God is calling on them to be steadfast as they wait and go through the process we've got people here that are suffering through the consequences of broken relationships divorces and other broken relationships in their lives and the consequences don't go away people think well divorce will will solve the problems but it just creates a whole new set that never go away they are constant having to deal with the consequences of a divorce or other broken relationships there are people here that would love to be married and they thought by now they would be and they prayed and asked God to to bring them together with that mate that the God wants them to have and it hasn't happened for years they've prayed for that and it hasn't happened for them we've got couples who wanted to have a child for years have been trying to have a child and they've not been blessed with a child We've got families here that have family members in prison with long prison sentences. They write and they email and they make visits when they can, but it doesn't stop. It goes on and on and on. We've got people here that have been trying to finish up their schooling and get their degree to try to advance their career and something always happens to get in the way and delay it and keep it from happening and they're still trying and it's been years to get that degree. We've got people here who have family members deployed in the military and when they're gone off in the military you don't know where they are, exactly what's going on. Those are some of the longest days and weeks and months and years that you can experience. We've got people here that have suffered injury in a wheelchair. And for years now, been going through therapy and trying to walk again. Still haven't gotten there yet. And they face it every single day. People who have lost jobs and trying to find their, they, they can find work, but it's not where they can really support their families well. And they're trying to hang on and find that, 
that next opportunity where they can honestly support their family well again. And it goes on and on. See, my point is, when we talk about patience, we need to not think just of standing in line at the DMV. What James is talking about is how can you hold on to your faith and live it out daily when you face those challenges in life in this world? And he's wanting us to learn the value of holding on even when the next day seems impossible for you to get through. Is there a reason to keep your faith under those circumstances? And he reminds them of something really important. He says, the Lord's coming is near. And and I think that could be taken two ways. Uh, As I read scripture and it talks about the Lord's coming, of course it's talking many times about the second coming, but I think he's also reminding them that the Lord is near to everyone. I mean, the scripture teaches that, doesn't it? He's near to everyone. All the time. He's right there. And in the midst of the waiting and the suffering and the trials, sometimes we forget he's right there. He's right there with us. Every moment of every day when we're lonely and when we're hurting and when when it seems like things are getting worse instead of better, he's still right there all the time. In fact, he promises that if you hold on to your faith, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Doesn't mean you won't walk away from him. It means he will never walk away from you. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Um, The scripture says that nothing can separate us from his love. So if that's true, then we need to be reminded as we're waiting under trial as we're waiting under the suffering that we're we're going through we need to remember that that he's right there while we're waiting he's waiting with us I I've sat with a lot of families in waiting rooms over the years at hospitals I've sat with families at their funeral home as they're waiting to go in and see the body of their loved one that's died right I've also had people wait with me at times like that and it reminds me of the value of just being there during the wait just the presence during the waiting well think about the value of the presence of God during the waiting we need to start living by the faith understanding that God is there waiting with us and he's never going to leave you or forsake you doesn't mean he's going to speed it up it doesn't mean he's going to fix it right away it means his presence and his provision and his power is always there for you always the lord's coming is near but he is talking about the second coming too and we lose perspective there don't we how long ago did james say this a couple thousand years ago james wrote these words the lord's coming is near And we think, well, it's been 2,000 years. What's the holdup, right? Why isn't he here yet? Why hasn't he already come? In fact, most of us, when we hear those words, the Lord's coming is near, it either brings excitement or it brings fear into our lives, okay? For a lot of people, the idea of the Lord's coming is not something they're excited about and looking forward to. 
They're okay with him waiting a little while longer because they don't have, they think, their house in order. They don't have everything ready yet. You know, when you're expecting somebody that's really important in your life to come to your house, you want to be sure, you don't want them to show up early because you don't have everything ready yet. You don't want them to catch you at the last minute trying to fix everything and make it look good. And that's the way some people look at the Lord's coming. Maybe I'm okay with it, but, but let me get everything ready first. I, well, the time to get ready is when? Now. Because when you're ready, then the Lord's coming is near is something to be excited about. Something to look forward to with great anticipation. But we have to remember with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So in the Lord's view of things, it's only been a couple of days since James wrote this. Right? It's not been that long. There's a purpose to his waiting. We'll talk about that in a minute. But remember, in, in light of eternity, the time that has passed since James wrote this is not. It's only a speck on the page. The Lord's coming is near. Now, here's what we know. He wrote it 2,000 years ago, so we are now 2,000 years closer to the coming of the Lord than we were then. I have people all the time, I've talked about this before, who are trying to figure out when the Lord's going to come back. And that's, the, that's something they pour so much energy into and time into and, and effort into. And I always just sit back and smile and say, go for it, buddy. Because the Bible clearly says no one knows the day or the hour that the Lord's going to come back. If you want to waste your time working on that, that's fine with me. But meanwhile, I'm going to make sure I'm ready. And I want to try to help as many others be ready as I can. Because I think he could come at any moment. I'm convinced he could come at any moment. And we all need to be ready. And if we're ready, it's a great thing to look forward to remember the scripture says no more pain no more suffering no more death when the Lord comes back isn't that something to look forward to all things are going to be restored and made right with God again isn't that something to look forward to absolutely it's going to be better than anything we've ever experienced before I am looking forward to it if he came before I finished the message today I would be glad and rejoicing I would think it's the greatest thing that could happen. And I'm ready not because I got my act together. I'm ready because Jesus covers me with his blood. And I can eagerly anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. Well, James then also in this passage reveals to us two signs that maybe we're not doing a very good job with this. Two signs of impatience that I want us to look at. And remember, I want, to, I want to remind you of this. I want you to notice again how often James connects the heart to the tongue. All right? He connects our insides with what comes out of our mouths. He did that all the way through this letter. And he does it again in this passage. All right? Two signs of impatience. One of them, he says, is grumbling. Remember what he said there? Look at the passage again. He says, I don't want you grumbling. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. And he says, the judge is standing at the door. That's another illustration he uses that the Lord's coming is near. He, yeah, it's not like a southern goodbye. Well, a southern goodbye, when you get to the door, that's just the beginning of leaving, right? 
Y'all come back now, you hear, you know, all that stuff we're going to keep saying before we actually leave. But this phrase, he's standing at the door, means he's about to be there. All right? He's going to leave that door. He's already at the door. He's going to step out of that door to us. Okay, so the judge is standing at the door. So he's saying, you don't want to be caught grumbling against one another when he appears. That's not what you want to be doing when the Lord, the judge, appears. You see, he's saying, I don't want you to do, be living out your faith in a way where you're grumbling all the time. The audience that he's writing to most likely would have made a quick connection to their ancestors in the desert, leaving Egypt, okay? They had been in slavery and bondage for hundreds of years. God delivers them miraculously. Ten plagues, you remember the story? The ten plagues, you've seen the movie if you haven't, you haven't read the scripture, right? The Ten Commandments movie. That he gets them out of Egypt, right? Moses is leading them. They get to the Red Sea, and, and the, the army of Pharaoh is now pursuing them, and they just, they just got out of town, right? They're just now starting the journey. They come to the Red Sea, and here's what they start doing. Moses, why would you bring us out here to die in the desert? We've been better off back in Egypt. Now, the whole time in Egypt, what were they doing? Grumbling about how bad everything was in Egypt, how bad it was to be a slave. Now they're grumbling already about Moses bringing them out of that because now they feel like, oh, this is too big, this is too hard, we're going to get killed out here in the desert, right? It doesn't stop there. They're, they're, they're traveling, you know, to the land of promise. God says, I've got a land I'm going to give you. It's going to be yours. It's your inheritance. It's going to be flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be great. And on the way, they say, oh, we're hungry. Can we stop and eat? Sound familiar? And God provides manna. Think about this. Food falls from the sky. Every morning they wake up and God has dropped food down out of the sky for them to eat. And at first, yay, God. But after a few meals of manna, for a long enough period of time, we want something else. We don't want this manna anymore. We want meat, right? No matter what, no matter what God did, he provided water, he provided food, he provided everything. He took them and he, he said, I'm going to give you victories over your enemies. And they complained the whole time they grumbled against God and against Moses. And James says, friends... <laughs> With the blessings that you have in Christ, the most ridiculous thing you could do, even if you're going through some hard things, is to grumble against God. Understanding that what God has for you, what God has already done for you, what God will do for you in the future, the promises that he said he's going to keep for you, we've got no reason to be grumbling against God. And yet, sometimes, that's the first thing we do at the first sign of something hard in our lives. God, why did you let this happen to me? God, why would good people have to go through hard things? You know, we've got all these things we say, accusatory against God. 
and our grumbling against him. And we grumble against each other when we're having to wait and, and things aren't going the way we want them to go. Uh, we live in a culture today where <laughs> grumbling has become an art form. It really has. It's become almost an Olympic event. Social media grumbling is, is beyond anything I could ever have imagined it would ever become. I see people who had to wait at a restaurant just destroy the restaurant on social media. You don't have a clue what happened that day at that restaurant. You don't have a clue what was going on in those servers' lives or the, or the people back in the kitchen, what happened back there. You don't have a clue. It's all about you having to wait for your food today. Just thought I'd throw that in there before you go out to eat lunch today. <laughs> we grumble about so much all the time. And no generation that's ever lived on the face of the earth has been more blessed than our generation. Ever. There's not been a single generation ever in the history of the world that is more blessed than human beings on the earth in America right now. We are so blessed. And we're still just grumbling all the time. Even against each other. One of the worst things about the witness of the church is how the church grumbles against each other. How even within the church there's disunity and fighting and, and backbiting and criticizing and tearing down each other. Even in the church. Just when the, Lord comes, when the Lord comes back, he doesn't want you to be grumbling. And when is he going to come back? You don't know. So how often should you be grumbling? Never. Let's get that out of our lives. Let's stop the grumbling and the complaining. And then he says there's another sign of impatience and it's swearing. Here's kind of the progression. Impatience leads to anger, and anger leads to what? Swearing. Now, I'm going to call any names here, but some of you have confessed to me that in traffic, in Nashville, when you're trying to get somewhere, you get stuck in traffic. That's when you have the hardest time. Controlling the anger and the complaints and the grumbling. And it can lead to swearing, can it? Let's just be real. It can lead to swearing. And it does sometimes lead to swearing. Now, swearing can be taken two ways. I'm going to be talking about the other way that James is really emphasizing here. But he's also talking about the tongue again, what comes out of our mouths, right? Don't let unwholesome things the scripture says come out of our mouths but only what is pleasing and able to build others up he says that's what should be coming out of our mouths so this swearing that we're doing let me ask you something has it ever helped the traffic problem when you did that no has it ever helped you feel better when you did, did get to work that day no you're all so riled up and 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 mean-spirited you thought it was going to make you feel better but actually you come into work with that bitterness already in your heart. And then when you speak to other people and interact with other people, what's already there? That anger and that bitterness is still lingering there in your heart and your mind. It is. Friends, this is something we need to learn to get under control with the help of God, under the control of the Spirit of God. We've got to do a better job with getting rid of the swearing in our lives. But he's also talking about not just bad language. He's talking about swearing 
like in their culture, they would swear under oath. We still do the same thing in some ways today where we swear under oath. Like in a court of law, we swear to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help us God, right? We, we swear that we're going to do something or say something or act in some way. And, and he's saying, I don't want you to have to go around swearing. I want you to be the kind of people where that's not even necessary. Uh, we say things like, even in casual conversation, if we want to emphasize to somebody that we're telling them the truth, we'll say things like this, I swear to God, right? He's saying, I want you to be the kind of people that you never have to say that. You never even feel the need to say that. You know why? Because your yes has always been yes, and your no has always been no, and everybody knows that about you. You don't have to swear to God to get somebody to believe you when you say something. Just be the kind of person that people know when something comes out of your mouth, it's true. It's not going to be falsehood. It's not going to be deception coming out of your mouth. And if we can be patient enough to, to live our lives that way where we're not having to cover up and, 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 and deceive and lie about things because we just patiently live out our faith consistently, then we won't feel the need to keep swearing about things. It's like Peter, remember, when Jesus was arrested and he followed along at a distance and he's out in the, the garden there, the courtyard area there, and they say, weren't you with Jesus? And he said, no, I don't know, I wasn't with Jesus. And second time, weren't you one of his followers? No, I, I wasn't with Jesus. The third time, it says Peter was really frustrated and upset and he swore on an oath, I don't know the man. You see, his patience had run out with all the accusations. He decided to swear. And he's saying, that's a sign that you're struggling with the patience you need to have in your life when you start thinking you have to swear about things. Well, he closes, I want to close with three examples that he gives of patience very quickly. One, he says, it's the farmer, right? Look at the farmer. He has to patiently wait for the spring rains and the fall rains, okay? He can't speed them up. He can't make them happen. But here's the thing you have to know about the farmer. Does the farmer just sit around waiting? What does the farmer need to do besides waiting for the rains? Got to plow the field. Got to plant the seeds. Got to get the weeds out, right? See, we misunderstand waiting on the Lord as if we're supposed to just sit back and say, God, just do your thing. That's not what it means to wait on the Lord. To wait on the Lord means you steadfastly do the right things that God has told you to do while you're waiting. That's what it means to wait on the Lord, patiently on the Lord. You don't sit and wait. The farmer doesn't just sit and wait, but there are a lot of things out of his control, right? He can't always control the weather. He can't always control when the rains are going to come or how much rain is going to come. He can't control that stuff. He can control his obedience and what he needs to be doing. In the meantime, so he's saying to us Christ followers, the stuff you can't control, your decisions to be obedient to God, you control those things the way you need to. And you wait on God to do the rest, to take care of the other things. So the farmer has to do all he can, and he has to trust God for the rest while he waits. And that's the example he wants us to follow in living out our faith, is do all we can and trust God for the rest. 
do all we can in our walk with him to be obedient, to be, to be living out uh, correctly what he's told us to do, but then trust God to do his thing. And then he gives us the example of the Old Testament prophets. And we forget sometimes, we, we read about the Old Testament prophets and we think of revered patriarchs of the faith, right? And they were. But you know why they're so revered? The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews 11, they were tortured, ridiculed, flogged, thrown in prison, stoned, sawed in two, put to death by the sword, had to hide out in the caves. They were poor and they were destitute, yet they were commended for their what? Faith. They held on, were consistently faithful to God through all of those struggles and challenges and hard things that God allowed them to go through in their lives. That's why they are honored patriarchs and matriarchs of the faith. It's because they were faithful even when they had to wait on God to get them through the worst of things in their lives. You see, that's the value of waiting, is your testimony is so much more powerfully effective if you can hold on through the hard things. And still be faithful then. Anybody can smile and talk about how good God is when everything's going well in your life. But what about when the diagnosis comes that's terminal? What about when the child is killed in an accident? What about when the marriage dissolves? What about those things? Is there still the faith, the trust in God? The dependence on his care. And then he gives us one more example. I want to close with this one. Job. What an example. I don't know how many of you read the book of Job. Uh, don't read it as a pick-me-up pick kind of thing. It's not the kind of devotional that's going to be a fun read for you. Okay? That's not what this is. Job talks about a guy who loved God, who Satan decided to, to, to test, and God allowed Satan to test Job. And Job went through the worst and the hardest of things that any one human being could ever go through. And, and without going into all the theology behind it, just understand that that God allowed this to happen, and, and Job is going through this terrible testing. And Job, in a very short period of time, he had been very successful and very blessed, and he was wealthy, and he had good things in his life, and quickly all of it was taken away. Uh, it tells us in Scripture that he had 7,000 sheep. You know what God did with all the losses Job had? He, he gave him back twice as much. At the end of the story, Job has... 14,000 sheep. Job had 3,000 camels. At the end of the story, God gave him 6,000 camels. He had 500 yoke of oxen. At the end of the story, God gave him 1,000 yoke of oxen. Job had 10 children, and God gave him 10 more. And you might be asking, why not 20? It's because God is a God of compassion and mercy. Besides, he had not really lost the other ten. He was going to see him again in eternity. See, God gave him back twice as much as anything he had ever lost. All suffering is temporary. You need to remember that. All suffering in this world is temporary. Because this world is temporary, 
and everything in it is temporary, including the suffering that you go through in this world. It's all temporary. Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In 2 Peter 3, beginning with verse 8, people were concerned that God hadn't come back yet, even back then, that Jesus hadn't already returned. And Peter answers that, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as if some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Let's pray together. Father, Father, we are reminded that whatever it is we need to patiently go through here on this earth, it is so temporary compared to eternity. And as hard as it is at the moment, and, and, and we know it is, and nobody's making light of that, it doesn't even compare with the glory that is yet to be revealed when Jesus appears. It's going to be so much better than anything we could ever imagine. So, Father, help us to wait patiently on the Lord, to stay steadfast and immovable in our faith, and to give ourselves to the eternal things that really matter the most. That when Jesus appears, we will be ready, and we'll bring as many with us as we can. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.